There's something galvanising about spring in full swing, when the weather has finally given up havering between cold snaps and clement days. Colour returns to cities, often in style. In my London street, blossoms blow through the air like a snowstorm from the cherry trees laden with flowers. Confex team has been on the move this month, zipping back and forth on Eurostar and occasional planes for holidays and work forays. This episode hums with the sound of vaporettos on Venice's canals, zipping artists, collectors and journalists to the Art Biennale. Confex deputy editor Chiara Romella returned effervescent with new ideas and a little one from partying after a week at the Biennale's Vernissage preview. We also explore spring's culinary bounty by speaking to Slovenia's celebrated chef Anna Ross, who recalls how her childhood memories influence her gastronomic creativity today. We hear about an innovative plant-based fabric brand making sustainability fashionable. And we ask, does an apparel spritz taste the same outside of Italy? Or green sauce out of Frankfurt? I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. By being a very green country, everybody has a tradition of the garden. So this is what Slovenia really is. Diverse, green, um, very tasty, very ecological. With the use of seaweed in textile, we're helping the ocean actually because we are using a type of seaweed that with its collection is regenerating in the ocean. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London, and I'm joined by Gillian Tobias here with me in the studio and Marcella Palak in our Zurich office. Hello to you both this glorious sunny day. Truly glorious. <laughs> Hello, Marcella. Hello, London. Yeah, it's wonderful. Bright blue skies and um, crisp, fresh air. Body opening May 14. Ah, ah body. I'm sure you'll be there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to take we all will first. be there. <laughs> um, well, as our regular listeners will know, we'd like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. But um, Gillian, what's caught your eye this month? Well, I was very lucky to have spent a week in Como over Easter. And when I could drag myself away from the gorgeous cafes and the view of the lake, I did go to a really interesting exhibition at the Villa Olmo, which is a wonderful 18th century villa. And inside was an exhibition about the sort of unsung heroes of abstract art, the female artists between the periods of the 1930s and 1990s. And it was really nice to see this, their work, the spotlight on their work in this context of, a, of an old palazzo. But I have to say my real discovery was my friends I was staying with took me to some bric-a-brac shops because they're trying to furnish their house. And that was an absolute joy of discovery because all these old villas and houses, when the elderly relatives pass away, you know, this is the the place where their objet that they've lived their lives with find their home to be passed on. And there's something about going in bric-a-brac shops in another country, in another culture, and then being able to look at lives lived and um, the design being Italy. These simple, simple, simple things, spoons, beautifully designed cups, saucers, glasses, vases. You know, I could just go and do a little pilgrimage, I think, of bric-a-brac shops and, uh, well, Como, around Como. I'll certainly join you on that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Marcella, you've also been in Italy, Milan, to be specific. Yeah, it's actually very close to Switzerland, so Milano is uh, always a good idea. 
So next time when I travel there by train, I will stay longer in the main station, the Stazione Centrale. There is a new food hall called Mercato Centrale on the left side of the huge station building. It's uh, close to Piazza Quattro Novembre and it's really fantastic. You can drink there a Franciacorta, eat a slice of farinata. You can even have a, a fritto misto di pesce prepared by a top chef. And um, you can also grab something if you're jumping to the train back home. They have antipasti, homemade pasta. It's really, it's fantastic. And Sophie, what about you? Where have you been? Well, I've just come back from Cadiz in southern Spain, which is an amazing sort of almost sort of a little city, almost Venetian style, a kind of a little island um, city right down in Andalusia, a beautiful ancient place to explore with very, very narrow streets and high buildings. But it's the home of flamenco, the kind of experience of just going into a small bar and just watching a few, you know, a little quartet of women and a guitarist and a singer perform was really amazing and really emotional and intense <laughs> and is it spontaneous like is it does this sort of happen uh, well it was a venue it was a little little venue in Cadiz but the intimacy of just watching these mm. performers the way they communicate without mm. words and the way that there's a narrative in the flamenco that you can almost read and I was with my children who were completely mesmerized mm. for for an hour and a half you know they, they're usually running around <laughs> the place and I think that was also very compelling to watch, you know, all ages, sort of the storytelling through the body and, mm. and the way that they, um, sort of the romance and the intensity of it. I was completely won over. To see it in Cadiz is really something special. And there's something you could almost take the music away and you'll still feel the passion and the rhythm, even without the music, because it's just it's so corporal. I actually wept. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how kind of won over. I was probably in the front row thinking, oh God, here's another one. But it was just really, it was really wonderful. And so that stayed with me and I'm glad that I made the effort to get down there mm. because um, the beach was very, was very very wonderful and it was difficult to kind of pull ourselves off from the coast and go into <laughs> the walled sure. city. Um, but now we begin in the mountains of Socha Valley in Slovenia, where Anna Ross is head chef of the country's only Michelin-style restaurant, Hissa Franco. Inspired by the rugged terroir and traditional dishes of the region, Ross has a meticulous and somewhat scientific approach to cooking, always guided by the rhythm of the seasons. She joined us both a little earlier to talk about the dishes she's eyeing up this spring and why Slovenia's rich gastronomy is finally being discovered. I would say, first of all, a lot of people don't even know where Slovenia is because it's such a tiny small country with uh, a little bit more than 2 million people and 21,000 square kilometers. I mean, you can cross it in two hours north to south and three hours east to west. So I can understand that people sometimes are a little bit thinking when I say I'm Slovenian and trying to place it. And of course, therefore, it's a, a little bit difficult to know a lot about the country from the cultural, but also from the gastronomic point of view by being surrounded by the very big cultural, linguistic, but also food identities as Italy on the west, Austria with the Viennese cuisine on the north. Then we have uh, Balkans on the south and then a little bit, a small, tiny border with Hungary. 
which of course is known for very uh, typical European cuisine. So imagine that the borders are changing uh, constantly, has been changing in centuries. This is how uh, the footprints of different cultures remained in our culture. Your big strength is being at that crossroads in many ways. Exactly. And then just think that in this very tiny space, we have one of the biggest uh, geographical and climatic diversities in the world. So uh, from the skiing in the Alps to the Mediterranean beach, you need exactly 45 minutes. So it makes uh, having you a huge range of very different varied products, a fantastic playground by being very green country. Everybody has a tradition of the garden. So this is what Slovenia really is diverse, green, um, very tasty, very ecological. And your food is magical and it is one you Michelin stars. But I think one of the extraordinary things is you didn't train as a chef. You didn't train at a culinary institute. Can you talk maybe a bit about the intuitive elements, the alchemy that, you know, you throw into your food and that makes it so special? Well, there is a lot of personality in my food, a very strong character that is my character. I always say if the chef needs to respect the nature, he needs to respect the seasonality or the territory uh, micro locations, but he also needs to respect himself, his intuition, his vision of flavors, his vision of techniques, textures and colors. And this is what um, the cuisine of Hisha Franco really is. It's a lot of Anna in it. (laughs) And Anna, tell us about how you work with local producers, local farmers. I mean, I've been to Slovenia a few times to a region around Lake Bohin and there's a sense of this amazing pastoral environment with haystacks and beautiful farmsteads. Is that something that you draw on and does that inspire you? Well, nature is surely my inspiration. But you also have to understand that Kobarid Hisha Franco is so far away from bigger centers, from the cities, compared to other restaurants. We are really like a remote, far away destination, where like the suppliers, when I started, didn't actually reach the region. So if I wanted to have ingredients, I needed to knock on the doors of locals. They weren't even my partners or my producers. It was simple farmers who were maybe growing lambs or goat kids or maybe making cheese in a high mountain asking them to share products with us. That has been a very painful process because I'm talking about the period of 20 years ago when no one was talking about cooking uh, hand-to-hand with uh, producers. I mean, everybody was uh, in a molecular cuisine that time. So it has been uh, like uh, as every start when somebody's opening the doors, you know, he makes 10 steps forward and then nine back because uh, it is difficult to convince people that what you're doing is right. But today we have a very long chain of, uh, when I say local, it's really super local. You step on the top of the mountain, you can actually spot the places where we are sourcing from, including the sea, which is bare 35 kilometers by the air distance away. You know, from Colorado Mountain, for instance, you can see the bay where we we actually get uh, the fish and we have our fishermen. You're credited with putting Slovenia on the map because of your cuisine. But even though you use traditional ingredients and you're inspired by heritage, there's a lot of experimentation and surprise, clashing surprises in your cooking. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that discovery process and the experimentation and the ingredients that you put together that one might not perhaps expect and how important that is to what you do. You know, I believe when the chef 
cooks from himself, you of course have your ingredients around you. And I think that is respect also for the future of our children. It's respect for farmers because by using the ingredients, you are actually stimulating uh, traditions and uh, you show people that even economically uh, it has sense, you know, to continue farming in, let's say, traditional way because you have someone to sell the ingredients to. But on the other side, you know, there comes my part where I look at ingredients and then close my eyes and try to see as the painter sees colors, try to see flavors together. And sometimes there is really very unexpected combinations that everybody's like, are you sure this is going to work? My head chef Leo always says, you will see it's going to work. And sometimes it's something that is actually neurological because people say, but why would you put coffee and green pea together? And I'm like, I don't know. I just know my intuition says it's working. I mean, I've never heard about anything like that. And then we taste it and there is a huge logic behind it. I actually read recently a study of a scientist who actually proves that there are chefs who actually can follow their intuition about putting flavors together. And I guess I have a little bit of that talent. But um, I believe when you eat in Hisha Franco, you actually do the whole journey through my reflections, my thinking. Actually, sometimes it's even my political statements. Like in this moment, for instance, in Hisha Franco, we removed our super famous bread uh, from the menu to show support towards what is going on in Ukraine and crisis with the grain. And we substitute it with an incredible potato, which is cooked in a hay crust. There are people who are crying with this gesture, but also with thinking that actually a potato cooked this way brings you in your head to a high mountain, sleeping on a hay uh, in the middle of the farm, 2,000 meters snowy peaks around you. You know, that is what the food can do to you. It makes you travel, think, reflect, understand the curious Anna, who is always posing questions and sometimes the questions are without the answers. And Anna, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about expressing your personality in the food, but I wonder how much Hisafranco is a family restaurant and I wonder how many dishes, you know, call back to your your youth. You grew up in the former Yugoslavia. I, I wonder if there's any sort of dishes or culinary memories that you call upon in your work. But of course, you know, it's all about our childhood. Our personality um, is deeply rooted in what has happened and what we've seen, what we lived when we were children. So there is use of particular ingredients, love for masses, love for clams. When I was a kid, um, uh, we have a small stone house in Istria in uh, the Mediterranean, like an hour and a half driving south from here. And we were every evening picking our own meal, uh, diving bringing home uh, freshly picked mussels and clams, or even at that time, uh, sea dates. Now they are prohibited. And um, we would be cooking like this buzzara sauce with a lot of white wine and garlic and parsley. When I think about what makes me happy, which flavor combination makes me happy, of course, I think about that particular moment with my parents, which is called the small happiness. And this flavor combination, today I have like incredible course, which is, a chawanamushi, a kind of a coagulation of fava bean with the stock of masses and clams with uh, a local uh, pit cheese, which is very, very spicy, a layer covered on the top. And uh, there is a dirty salad of uh, cuttlefish because we pick really the small ones and we use the whole ones. Where is the memory there? It is this strong combination of clams, mussels, but instead of the garlic, I use uh, the spiciness of the cheese, which has very similar flavor notes. 
Also, I was reading that you studied diplomacy and it just so happens that you've become a sort of culinary diplomat for your country. (laughs) Well, yeah, I graduated in international science and diplomacy in Italy. And the funny thing is uh, a lot of my friends uh, from school, my colleagues are working uh, around the world in diplomatic jobs. So I'm actually doing the diplomatic uh, work from another way around. For instance, I helped save an Afghani boy from Kabul together with my schoolmate who was working in uh, at a European mission in Kabul. And I actually gave him work and home and a salary so he can actually integrate uh, happily in another life. I'm also um, officially the ambassador for sustainable tourism and gastronomy at United Nations. I bypassed all the traditional steps in diplomacy and just jumped into into it uh, by being a chef, where you can also do a lot of good work. Absolutely. I wondered, just a final thought, what dish and what sort of ingredient do you think is the most sort of emblematic of Slovenian cuisine? Mm, to be honest, this question cannot have an answer because, as I told you, we are so diverse that every region is cooking in a completely different way. If I speak about my region, I could say maybe skuta, which is a cottage cheese. But then if you go on the Slovenian East, they will say, of course not, it's a pumpkin oil. Or if you go on the coast, they will say, of course not, it's sardines. For me, the ingredient I love the most is tomato. I could eat tomato, cooked tomato. I, of course, respect the seasonality of it, but I'm looking forward for the summer when uh, those sweet tomatoes from Istria are coming. And then I could do the whole tasting menu just based on tomato. I think the first tasty tomato is really a moment for everyone to, <laughs> to celebrate. Anna, thank you so much for joining us on Confect Corner. Sophie, I'm not sure if you've ever uh, done a gastronomic tour of Slovenia, but have you kind of discovered regions with a kind of really distinct food culture? Well, I'm very interested in, in little microcultures. And particularly, I think it's interesting to look at port cities where really food cultures are informed by history and the spice trade. San Malo is one, and we've been eyeing up a story there for a while for Confect magazine. But there in the middle of Brittany, you'll find suddenly these spices, cardamom, really this piquant sort of Louisiana-style gumbo, and then it just vanishes. And I think Marseille is very similar like that. And it's very intriguing and kind of sort of wonderful, this magic that you can trace the map of this wonderful history in the French East India Company. It's funny, you often associate with the more sort of exotic sort of southern port cities. But it is interesting. I've never thought about that. You're right. Even the northern cities will have had all that spice trade, you know, over the years and centuries infused into some of their dishes, which are now taken for granted now. And Marcella, what about you? Are there any little microcultures that have caught your eye over the years? If you call Prague a microculture, <laughs> yes, it's uh, I, I know Prague and um, the kitchen from my grandparents actually, and I would say it's a fusion of German, Austrian, and probably Hungarian kitchen. I'm sure, Jillian, you know that I like especially the, the all kinds of salty and sweet. Knedliki, which is kind of uh, dumplings. And of course, the schnitzel, which you probably would see more Austrian, but is actually also very Czech and in Prague very popular. There's homemade potato salad. And of course, my always favorite and strudel. Mm. 
Well, I'm yeah. with you there. I have to say, even though I was born in Canada, there's no no Canadian food culture to talk about. But <laughs> I I go back to my Bohemian, my Czech roots, like like you. And really, for me, it's the sweet dumplings, the fruit dumplings that my mother used to make with like a a kind of ricotta cheese dough, and then either a beautiful apricot boiled inside or a wonderful plum, and then you'd put brown sugar and hot butter. And to me, that's always my childhood and it's a special special treat my dear friend uh, Helena on my birthday who is Czech as well always makes them for me for my birthday great memories oh I join you <laughs> I have nobody who can do them good to cultivate friends who are willing to <laughs> recreate your family heritage there. and know the recipes well <laughs> Next up on Confect Corner, we continue wetting our appetite, but this time we head a little further south to meet Argentinian chef Antonella Tignanelli. After stints in Melbourne, Berlin, Paris and Mexico City, Tignanelli eventually settled in Barcelona, where she co-founded restaurant Baldomero, as well as recently opening new restaurant Margarita up the coast on the Costa Brava. She's also the woman behind Food Rituals, a series of supper club-like themed events in unexpected locations where guests come together to enjoy a unique blend of food and performance art. As the warmer weather brought the city's residents back onto the streets, she took Confex Hester Underhill on a spin around Barcelona's Santa Catarina Market, her favourite spot for filling her pantry and exploring Catalan food culture. This is my favourite meat place. There's not much secret to it, but it's the best meat in the city, basically, really. Called David Carnicers. I love it. They all really know what they're doing. You can ask them for whatever in any name of any country, like let's say, I don't know, for example, I'm from Argentina and the cuts of the meat are different names in my country. But if I ask them for what I know in Argentina, they know exactly what it is, you know. They're super expert in what they do. And it's very good quality meat. And it looks like a a family operation as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. And there's a lot of women as well working with the meat, which is crazy i love it you know they're super delicate but at the same time they're working like with really heavy things all the time so proper badass female butchers yes totally (laughs) and so we've got behind us a dried fruit and nut stand is that something that you ever buy from wait this is one that i always buy from because this one has basically everything like really everything this one it's called la miel que viuras <laughs> it's like um, it means like they have everything kind of you know like they have cheese um, charcuterie they have like cans of preserved stuff they have wines but they also have any pantry stuff they, like li- this is like a supermarket itself you know like you can basically get anything here so I, I really love this place From butchers to bakers and everything in between, Santa Catarina boasts all different kinds of stallholders, united under one roof. It's also an excellent tourist-free spot in which to sample some of Spain's national delicacies. As we turn a corner, stacks of glittering salted cod come into view. Well, this is also something very beautiful that you're going to see in any market in Spain, is the stall of bacalao. 
only bacalao, like if you see, it's so beautiful from a aesthetic point of view, it's all white and salty and there's like so many ways of showing the product. We've got it stacked up kind of Jenga style in front of us and kind of long stretches of bacalao as well. So it's preserved like that and yeah, it lasts a long time. Not only is there a huge variety of produce here, but chefs like Antonella also come for the sheer depth of experience and knowledge that so many of the stallholders possess. There's no contemporary producers here. Everyone has been doing this for their whole lives. And if there is some younger people who are working in the stalls, it's because they inherited the spot from their parents. I love... Look at this, look at this. The sardines. The box is so beautiful. This as well, this is tuna, but it's made as like as a jamón. It's tuna, but it's treated, it's preserved as a ham. It's so good. Mojama, it's called. This is one of my favorites. It's called pesca salada. It's all preserved things. Everything is preserved. There's like, you can see, I don't know, like 35 types of different olives <laughs> with different sauces and yeah and which ones say you were having a dinner party which ones would you put out for guests or would you pick up a selection the olives mm -hmm. mm. I like these ones a lot like they're really green Sicilian <laughs> olives but all of them are super look these ones are amazing they have almonds inside well, these ones are great. I don't know how to explain this, though. They're enormous, these olives. They're enormous, and they've been, like, marinated in a gazpacho-like oil. So with a lot of, like, pimenton and garlic and bay leaves. Everything here is very good quality. They have all these, like, dried fishes, all these preserved fishes here. Have you tried this? No, what are they? Oh, is it Childas? Childas. Yeah. <laughs> they anchovies. They are a spicy pepper, an olive, and an anchovy. It's comprised of that. It's a very... I don't know if it's Catalan. It's a very Spanish thing. Very, very Spanish thing. And, this, and then I think this is my favorite fish stall. It's called uh, El Pescador. It's two women, uh, mom and daughter. The mom is not here, but they have the best fish in this market by far. Uh, and they're really nice. They're, they're really nice and kind of crazy as well. Like every time you come, there's a, a new story, a new chapter. She's in a bad mood today, look at her. Or, or a bit hungover, maybe. For Confect in Barcelona, I'm Hester Underhill. That was chef Antonella Tignanelli and Confex Hester Underhill in Barcelona. Coming up, this month's Culture Corner takes us to the city of canals and we reflect on food rituals. You're listening to Confect Corner. This is Confect Corner and I'm Sophie Grove. If you've had a chance to flick through the latest edition of Confect magazine, which we really do recommend, you might have seen that this edition's Confect conversation was an in-depth roundtable discussion on the future of fashion, where the path to authentic sustainability was hot on everyone's lips. 
It's a nuanced and complex conversation, particularly when it comes to the textile industry, which has long relied on synthetic fibres. One entrepreneur, Madrid-based former lawyer Regina Polanco, has tasked her company, Pyrotex, with remedying this issue. Founded in 2014, Pyrotex supplies innovative plant-based fabrics to brands like Nicholas Kirkwood and Pepe Jeans. She joined me in our Marlebone studios earlier this month to talk about her company's journey so far and just how you go about making thread out of algae. So actually it was inspiring myself from other industries because I realized that in other industries we use a lot of ingredients coming from nature and that in textile at the end we mainly use synthetic fibers always petroleum-based and then some animal fibers that are natural as well as cotton mainly. And that's how I thought about, well, if seaweed is great for our skin and that's why we use it in cosmetics and it's great for our bodies because it has vitamin E and that's why we eat it and we are integrating it in our food chain. Why not trying to make textiles out of them so we can really benefit from a skin perspective And that's how we thought about the other fibres that are today in our range. And just tell me quickly, how do you make a textile out of algae? So actually we work with seaweed that is coming from the north of the Atlantic. And what we do is that we dry that seaweed that is transformed then into powder. And this powder is blended with cellulosic fiber, so with wood pulp, that then is transformed into a yarn through a mechanical process. And once you've found the raw materials, you worked with a lot of R&D and a lot of engineers to make them into yarn, but then you found it was actually really difficult to get the industrial knitters Mm -hmm. to take on your yarn. That's another step in the story. Yeah, so actually fabrics were at the beginning developed at the lab level and then it was situation of, well, now we have to get into the next step. We have to make this scalable. We have to give the opportunity to brands to use these fabrics. Because when the R&D process took me between three and four years, I realized that instead of building a brand around those fabrics, it was way more interesting to offer those fabrics to a lot of brands that could use it. And that way, the story and, and the materials would have a way stronger impact. But then I had to build a supply chain that would have the capacity of producing in those fabrics. That was really complicated because the textile industry has been used to work with the same ingredients for so many years and the machines are adapted to that. So it was very complicated to convince the first kneader to knit our fabrics and actually we end up finding a very good partner in Italy that trusted the project because it was a project and that was it. We couldn't commit to any orders. We didn't have any client yet so it was well let's give it a chance, let's build the machine and if a fabric comes out and it looks nice we will present it to whoever wants to see it. So that must have been a moment (laughs) when you finally got some real textiles at the end of such a long process. But it's interesting to look at your collaborations because you're working with some established brands now and you have quite a big team, lots of experts assisting you and so on. Nicholas Kirk was using your yarn, people like Asics and, and Pepe Jeans quite big companies have decided to sort of invest in this Mm -hmm. quite wacky way of creating fabric. But I think 
maybe it's interesting to talk about how the industry is really starting to reassess the use of synthetics and even cotton. I mean, just because it's a natural fibre, it doesn't mean that somewhere down the line there is an element of exploitation in how it's made. Do you feel that there's a real sort of sea change happening in the industry and that you are more and more in demand with Pyrotex? Definitely. And actually, I believe that Pyrotex, we are pioneers on this textile revolution, but definitely there is others that are as well part of this change and we see that more and more companies at the B2B level are starting to offer very interesting proposals, not only on knitted fabrics, that it's our expertise, but also we see it in leathers and in fur alternatives. So we see that we are leaving a change and brands are very excited and I think we see more and more believers of this change. I think uh, the current situation worldwide in terms of raw materials and cost increase are making also realize the brands that they have to look for other alternatives than the traditional fibers because we can't depend on a couple of uh, ingredients for all the textile industry. And there's a lot of complexity to the industry. I mean, we've spoken to quite a few people who are upcycling new plastic bottles, for instance, and turning them into beautiful swimwear. But then other people are criticising them and saying, well, that's taking those bottles out of the chain of recycling and you can't recycle the swimwear. That will eventually end up in landfill. So it's interesting to kind of watch the evolution of how the textile industry is trying to navigate some of these ethical questions. Do you think that the answer is in algae-based or bio-based materials? Or do you think it's really, there's always going to be a place for synthetics? I think the consumption of synthetics should decrease, not only because of its environmental impact, but also because it's better for our bodies to be breathing natural fibres, and that's proven. I think that the solution is more towards regenerative fibres. So that are, in terms of water or energy consumption, less harmful for the planet, but that are also regenerating the planet. So, for example, what we see is that with the use of seaweed in textile, we're helping the ocean, actually, because we're using a type of seaweed that, with its collection, is regenerating in the ocean, helping to eliminate CO2 from the water. So I think we have to look beyond... Because we've damaged so much our planet, zero impact is not enough anymore. So we have to go for regenerative. And then on synthetics, it's complicated because we've built our textile industry around it. So we can't get rid of it immediately. And at Pyrotex, for example, that we produce some very technical fabrics. We sometimes need fabrics that have stretch and so that have elastan and that's a synthetic fiber. So we are still even getting uh, rid of them with a lot of difficulty. Recyclability of those synthetic fibres, I think it's a short-term solution that is already at least a, a little solution. And how do you ensure, for instance, that there isn't a kind of level of exploitation in your chain? Because I've spoken to fashion designers who are really in despair about the complexity of where fibre comes from, who picks the cotton, you know, who then processes it. It's very difficult to track. And mm -hmm. I think the industry is really trying now to add levels of accountability on each step. Have you been doing this and is it possible? Well, it's possible. 
in our case, we were new to the industry. So I think that not only we have an innovative product, but also an innovative business model. Because when we arrived to the industry, we saw, especially in uh, Europe, a very fragmented supply chain. So there is raw material suppliers from one side, then spinners from the other, then kneaders or weavers, then dyers. And, and so at the end, the brand or the garment manufacturer is purchasing a fabric that says made in Portugal, but has no idea if the fabric has made the tour of the world from the raw material. From our side, because we created fabrics from the raw material, we had to implement a supply chain. And so we decided the partners from the natural fiber. And so actually when a couple of years ago, the press started to talk about traceability, we were like, well, actually we're quite traceable because we know exactly who is making our fabrics. Since then, we've created what we call the Pyrotex passports. So each of our fabrics has a passport, kind of where they've been since they started. And I think there is a solution there with brands and garment manufacturers more aware of who is starting the process and how. Fabrics entrepreneur Regina Polanco there. You're listening to Confect Corner. And now it's time for our Culture Corner, and I'm joined happily by um, Convex Deputy Editor Chiara Rumella. You're just back from Venice. I'm very happy to have you back in London, I have to say, <laughs> for my own reasons. But also, just what an amazing trip. First off, a very interesting curation for this Biennale. Well, I think that it was an exciting time for a lot of people going back because the Art Biennale hadn't been in town since 2019. And much as the Architecture Biennale obviously draws an international crowd, I think it's the Art Biennale that people really get excited about. It's got, I guess, more of a wide appeal to the Venetians and to international visitors as well. And it's a bit more extravagant. It's a bit more out there. So that's why people flock to it. And I think that it's an interesting edition because it is curated by Cecilia Limani, who has set as a theme for her exhibition, The Milk of Dreams, which is actually taken by Leonora Carrington, the Mexican surrealists, kind of oeuvre. And it did carry this sense of surrealism through the exhibition. It had a lot of kind of tribalism, a lot of kind of weaving and kind of haunting pieces as well, but also a lot of female-centred works and a lot of females in the exhibitions themselves. One of the two venues, there are two venues for the main exhibition, one is the Giardini, one is the Arsenale, and the exhibition is split in two. One of the two venues featured exclusively female or non-binary artists, and the other exhibition was also predominantly female-focused. And this is something that has made headlines in the Italian and international press. It's interesting because when you do read Alemani's comments on this, she says, stop calling it the Women's Biennale, please. What should be shocking is the fact that until now, or at least in the previous editions, Ralph Rugoff actually did a 50-50 kind of show in terms of gender balance. But before that, the balance was always really heavily skewed towards the men. So maybe we should be talking more about how that should have made headlines as opposed to, oh, look, now it's the women's edition. Well, certainly writing a historical injustice or or a balance there. But I wonder, um, you've been in Venice for a few days, you know, intensively hopping from pavilion to pavilion. What really struck you? What, what's your favourite in a way? 
Well, there was lots of really interesting things as usual. Many things very accomplished, some things that didn't stick so much. Sonia Boyce, who we did interview, that did win the Golden Lion. But I have to say, probably my favourite was Simone Lee for uh, the US. She completely reconfigured the pavilion. It had a thatched roof outside, a huge kind of colossal sculpture outside, and inside her beautiful kind of monochrome sculptures. They were really, really striking. I really enjoyed the Belgian pavilion, which featured video installations of children playing and different games around the world. But I also really, really enjoyed the Sami pavilion. It was a first for the Biennale. Usually we would know it as the Nordic pavilion, the beautiful structure designed by Alvaralto. But this year they kind of did away with national label, I guess, and decided to dedicate it to indigenous people. I had the pleasure of talking to one of the curators of the exhibition, who explained to me that it's not just about the change in terms of how we think about nationalism and sovereignty, but also the fact that Sami artists think about art in a completely different way. Let's take a listen. The first thing we have to like resolve when we talk about art is that art again, is a colonial concept. And in Sami practice, we haven't had the term art. You know, it was just recently a term that was brought into the languages because art wasn't something separate from your everyday life. Everything around you is art, and you are art, if you want to really think about it in that way. That being said, when you think about like the idea of art, if we look at, for instance, Anna Sunna's work and his pictures that he has painted, what he has done is actually worked within the ways that we have kept records in our culture. Sami cultures are not, you know, we're oral cultures in that our literature is not found in letters and books necessarily. I mean, of course, we have. (laughs) We have letters and books. But the first Sami book was published in 1910. Before that, our books, our archives of knowledge were found in our oral stories. It was found in our objects and things. It was found in our bodily practices. So we wrote history very different from how the Western world wrote history. That doesn't mean that the way we wrote history is somehow lesser. It's not. In my mother's community, we have a thing, it's called the Chalichimye, and that's a secret language that has been given from mother to daughter throughout generations. And in that language, you write history, stories, through embroidery. It's the same as in my father's community. You do the same, only you do it with weaving. So we have archives of knowledge. We have records. That was Lisa Ravner Finbog, the co-curator of the Sami Pavilion. Fascinating, right? It just completely turns so many ideas that you think you have in your head completely upside down. It's so striking and so poetic that she says, you know, we are art. This doesn't need to be commodified and sold and, you know, even put in the pavilion. But then yet they they had the pavilion. And and can you just explain a little bit about what that meant, uh, what that felt like to experience as a viewer? Because how do you take something that is a secret language of embroidery, something with so much kind of spirituality and context and put it into the Biennale. It's really hard, actually, and it is something that we talked about beyond this conversation because there is a tension there. You know, you're trying to... You believe in the power of art to spotlight these issues and you do 
believe in the fact that they need to be talked about because people need to have their minds open to this other perspective. But the Biennale is a concentrated moment when people don't have that much time, has historically been structured around these national pavilions, which have their own complications. It's a very Western event, or at least has been very Western for a very long time. It's going beyond those borders now. So I think it's interesting to insert that in this context. So many of the works inside the Sami Pavilion were about climate change, because it does affect indigenous communities very, very heavily. And yet, you know, we're talking about a world that's kind of going back to full speed, Venice, which is kind of overrun by tourists, whilst they're talking about people kind of felling the trees in the Sami communities and and not really having that much space for nature anymore. So then it's a real tension. And I guess it's more interesting to talk about it then, because otherwise you're never going to get that level of intricacy out of the works and out of the show. And you can hear the ambivalence in her voice talking about art as a colonial structure, but then also how, obviously, how interesting and how what a great platform for them as an Indigenous community to be able to put all of those ideas across and, you know, actually really talk about some of the causes that are very important to the Sami community, but also the identity that a lot of people probably wouldn't come across. And art is such an interesting sort of way of communicating that. But you mentioned there are lots of predominantly Western nations, but you were very struck by the Ghana Pavilion. Definitely. I was particularly struck by Ghana. It was its second outing at the Biennale. So I I went to its inaugural pavilion last time. But this year they really did an incredible job. It's a collective show of different independent artists. But I spoke to one of them particularly about the different portrayals of femininity in the nation, but also, I guess, in general, in the way that we look at women. Let's take a listen to my chat with her. I have seven paintings up and a sort of central beaded installation hanging in the pavilion. Seven characters, I should say, who each are very distinct in the way they look, the kinds of materials that will be associated with them as I continue making work around them have distinct sort of behaviours as well. Each of these behaviours are sort of based off negative stereotypes of women and I'm using them as taking that and turning it around and using them as a form of escape through the art of the masquerade. So for women who are flighty, there's a masquerade costume for a woman who wants to become flighty for however long she wants to become. So sort of like, you know, twisting things around a little bit and sort of expanding upon what womanhood or femininity really is within you know the context of Ghana or West Africa as a black woman you know moving through space so what we have in the pavilion seven paintings and um, this particular character whose name is Lara is sort of kind of based on the idea of having control over her body having control over her sexuality and who has access to her body and her sexuality so what I've created in the center is basically some sort of beaded installation intervention that kind of barrier of sorts which people can walk through if they choose to which kind of makes it still a bit more interactive but it's supposed to sort of explore this idea of creating a kind of a distance between the character and who wants to access her and her sort of having a say of sorts in terms of who she would allow to get to her. That was the artist Na Chengwa Reindorf talking to me at the Biennale. You know, sometimes you don't have so much time to actually 
get to grips with like an artist's work at the Biennale. But when you are able to talk to them about it, that it just opens a whole another world. I think that obviously, if you do have the kind of honor to go during the Vernissage, it's great and it can be overwhelming, but it's also such a privilege to meet all these artists in person. It's funny because we often talk about art in terms of like our reaction and maybe even what the artist says is sort of something removed. But just even listening to her there, you get such a sense of the journey she's been on and like the intellectual kind of train of thought that goes through all of those different guises of women and just even a small amount of information from her is com- could completely transform the way you see it. So the Renaissance is such an amazing kind of special moment for the art world really but I, I wanted to ask you also obviously about parties because there are loads of parties um, I know you probably got a little bit of art party fatigue when you were out there poor things <laughs> but like there is an amazing scene just such a gathering of artists collectors gallerists journalists and you know some very good outfits possibly absolutely absolutely <laughs> now i have to say the parties are just such an integral part of the vernissage week but it, it they matter because you go to the openings of the exhibitions and you get to see these incredible palazzos which all the other times would be closed off to public visitors but you actually get a glimpse of these incredible kind of 18th century 17th century palazzos with the frescoes and the beautiful kind of furnishings i had the pleasure of going to one of chanel's uh, parties the best smelling party i've ever been to in my life after <laughs> say flowers everywhere and the scent was incredible they really know how to make those perfumes but it was an an occasion of their art prize so a lot of kind of companies are getting involved in the biennale also with their own kind of arts initiatives and it's great to see that a company can really support kind of up-and-coming artists in that way with a sensible kind of cash prize that can really transform an artist's life then i had the occasion to go to a eight course dinner (laughs) in a palazzo again God, the things I have to put myself through. Exhausting. Um, <laughs> by, by this really interesting company called We Are Owner. They do these pop-up dinners at events around arts and design calendar around the world. So they did it for the Venice Biennale, but it'll pop up again at Salone de Mobile, at Art Basel. So if any of our listeners are kind of headed there, they can see if they can get through an eight-course dinner with the owner. And then the final night was really quite fun because first I had a party for the Sami Pavilion with some pretty important dignitaries and also the artists, the curators of the Sami Pavilion and I guess generally the group was all dressed in traditional Sami dress. And then after that, we went to the Canada Pavilion party, which was a completely different vibe. It was a warehouse party in the back of the Arsenale, DJed by kind of Detroit legend Carl Craig. So I did spot Sammy Pavilion artists there also. So in their traditional garb. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Jumping up and down to techno because that's the way to do it. I'm very jealous and it sounds like a week of contrast, darkness and light. Amazing artists. And thank you so much for sharing your feedback on Confet Corner. And now for a final thought, we turn to musicologist, podcast producer and writer Martha Lisson, who has been musing on the importance of savouring rituals and how a particular fresh herb source signals spring is well underway in Germany. Our experience of taste is easily led by context. 
dust and Aperol spritz, sipped on a Venice canal amid the smell of brine and sputtering engines, taste better than it might elsewhere? Are some drinks and dishes better consumed in their native surroundings? Try an Apfelstrudel in the lavish comfort of Café Demel in Vienna and let me know. For someone who grew up on the outskirts of Frankfurt and lived in the city, there is nothing like a sunny day sitting on a bench at a long table in the garden of an Apfelweinwirtschaft, that is, an Applewine pub, relishing a plate full of local grüne Soße. This fresh herb sauce made from borage, chervil, chives, garden cress, parsley, burnet and sorrel is served cold with a boiled egg and or boiled potatoes. The seven different herbs need to be fresh, finely chopped, manually. It is considered unorthodox to use the kitchen machine. They are blended with yogurt, sour cream, a splash of mustard and seasoned with salt and pepper. Fertig. When the words Grüne Soße reappear on the blackboards outside the city's apple wine pubs, you know that it's spring. Bundles of herbs wrapped in paper are sold in supermarkets and at farmers markets during the season, which starts on Maundy Thursday, Green Thursday in German, and lasts all summer. The herbs need to be grown in Frankfurt and its bordering communities. If they are not, it is not a Frankfurter Grüne Soße, a protected geographical indication in the EU register. It's our equivalent of champagne. On cool spring days, we indulge in grüne Soße and apple wine in the rustique interior of the Apfelweinwirtschaft. Creaking wooden floors, wood panelled walls, long wooden benches and tables that we share with people we don't know, but do by the end of the evening. The Apfelweinwirtschaft is Frankfurt's living room where everyone comes together. I have spent countless evenings on such a bench with the family or with friends and their friends, sharing Bembel after Bembel and eating Frankfurt specialities, forgetting closing time. A Bembel is a grey glazed stoneware jug with blue decoration in which the apple wine is served. I don't know why the Gris sauce, as native Frankfurters call it, hasn't been adopted or exported. It's rarely found on menus outside the Hesse region. I know that Frankfurters abroad miss its presence. As it happened last spring, I joined a community garden in South London that focuses on edible horcher. As soon as I could, I planted sorrel, borage, chervil and burnet. Perhaps it was the climate, or the soil, or my meagre cottage garden experience, but the results were tiny leaves hardly distinguishable from weeds. I harvested the borage with its blue, beautiful flowers too late and its hairy leaves had become too chewy. I saved a few, however, just enough to mix them with ricotta and fill three small courgette flowers with. It could be worse. I will try again this year. I still find pleasure in the idea of sharing a big bowl of grüne sauce with my London friends, hoping that they love it just as much as I do. Will my grüne Soße produced in London taste as good as in Frankfurt? Probably not. 
but it can transport me a long way to those cheerfully lingering evenings at the Fichtegrenzi and the Weide with sweet sour odour of apple wine hanging in the air, the room filled with Hessian accented chatter and never any background music, the thuds of heavy apple wine filled bambles hitting the tables and the clinking of raised apple wine glasses and cheering in unison, shopper. That was Marthe Listen there. Now, Marcella, have you ever tried this this fabled green sauce? It sounds amazing. When I read it, then uh, my mouth was watering. But actually, I never tried this green sauce. I think there's something similar in Lisbon, but I suppose that's something completely different. Yeah, to be honest, for me, like an excellent Italian olive oil is the best sauce you can get. Julian, nothing can beat a great, great, great vinaigrette and the French vinaigrette is the best. And talking of rituals, it has to be a vinaigrette with artichoke. And now that we're in artichoke season to just pull off the leaves and dip them in a delicious, perfectly balanced vinaigrette is is one of my favourite things in the world. What I love about um, Martha's piece is that actually that green sauce is registered it's almost like the champagne of frankfurt (laughs) and you have to have those exact herbs they have to be from the local area Uh, how about you sophie well i love the beginning of the asparagus season it's such a moment in sort of early summer and spring when you can sort of see these wonderful green sort of bounty everywhere and where I'm from in the Fens near Cambridge there's always a wonderful sort of sense that the asparagus season has arrived and when we were teenagers people used to be in the fields kind of clipping and cutting the asparagus when this moment came so I think it's just a sense of celebration and it's so nice to be in tune with the seasons. So do you like to have your asparagus with um, a hollandaise or a hot butter? Gillian, I'm a vinaigrette person through and through, but I will experiment with the occasional hollandaise. Uh, but it's always a bit of a risk with the bain-marie <laughs> in my kitchen, it has to be said. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for on this show. But thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company once again. Issue 6 of Confect is out now. Get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. This episode was edited by Antonio Fernandez. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>